This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who recently placed a wager on a horse fight. Here is the captain. He knew the game of fisticuffs. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are sipping on Paradox Pilsner by the good folks over at Paradox Brewery in North Hudson. This Pilsner is European-inspired with some good hop spiciness. This is a delicious old-school Pils, garage-grade three-and-three-quarter bottle caps. Let's give out some thanks and praise. First up, a big cheers to a very good friend of the show, and met Waymuller over in beautiful Copenhagen, Denmark. And a little cheers to Madison in Melbourne, Australia. Next up, we have Julia in Gross Point Park, Michigan. Gross Point blank. Yeah. Cheers to Julia. Yeah, Julia Gulia. And a big shout to Lawrence in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Next up, we have Sarah B. in Oshawa, Ontario. And last but certainly not least, we have Christy in Grove City, Ohio. Thank you to everyone who went to truecrimegarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. If you want to help us out with next week's beer fund, just go to that website and click on the donate button. Yeah, B double E double R U N beer run. Go over to the website truecrimegarage.com. Go there now and check out our store page. We got a couple new shirts for you. One that the Crispy Colonel designed, OJ did it we have t-shirts we have stickers we have beer mugs and many more items so check that out at truecrimegarage.com all right that's enough of the business everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime
We've heard these terrifying tales so many times. A young woman is there one minute, and the next, she is gone. Vanishing seemingly without a trace. The devastated families are left to try to cope as best they can. Living with not having any answers. In some cases, there are clues, some warning signs or red flags pointing to what could have happened. But in some perplexing cases, such as this one, there is literally nothing. So we are left to speculate. Is someone close to her responsible for her disappearance? Could the young woman have been the victim of a random crime of opportunity? Is her case similar to others in the area? Or could she have been the victim of one of the most notorious and calculated serial killers of our time? This is True Crime Garage, and this is the case of Suzanne Lyle. In 1978, Doug and Mary Lyle, already the parents of two children, welcomed into this world a sweet little baby girl. Suzanne Lyle was born on April 6, 1978. Her parents say she was a surprise baby, joining her 12-year-old brother Stephen and 9-year-old sister Sandy in their home in Boston Spa. This is a small town of just 5,000 people located in Saratoga County, which is in upstate New York. From a very early age, it was evident that Susie was very smart. She wanted to read and write, especially poetry, and do anything with computers. As a teen, Susie was not concerned with what other girls her age were doing. In fact, a high school classmate of hers says Susie didn't really have any close girlfriends. She pretty much kept to herself writing poetry in her spiral notebook. Her mom tells a story of one day when Susie was in the shower and she jumped out with soap in her hair and ran down the hall to write down a poem that had come to mind as she bathed. Yeah, that that happened to me one time. The poem was titled Flicky Flicky, Don't Touch Your Sticky. Oh, right. Mm. Well, something we can respect, Captain, is Susie was a big fan of the Canadian band Rush. Slapping the bass. As you can see, Susie enjoyed solitary activities. Her parents fondly recall Susie as a geek, but in the best brainiac way possible. Susie was very successful at school and getting good grades were no trouble. And quite successful with computers as well. At the age of 12, she dismantled and reassembled her Commodore 64 computer. By middle school, she was helping the teachers with their computer problems and fixing the school's computers as well. Just like the colonel. That's right. I take them apart and... And I put them back together with gum. And then there's a few extra pieces left over. In high school, in the 1990s, this was... She was already connecting with people in chat rooms online before this was an actual thing building not before it was actual thing before it was popular there you go 
And she was working toward learning computer programming at that time as well. At the age of 16, she joined a computer club that met at a local Denny's. This is where she met Richard Condon, the computer club president. Susie's computer friend, Mike, was a neighbor of Rich Condon's. And he introduced the two virtually before they met in person at the Denny's. Rich was 17 and he and Susie were kindred spirits. Susie's dad was initially impressed with Rich, describing him as mature beyond his years, something we've never been described <laughs> as. Uh, he's also described as well-spoken. We'll strike out nope. there again. And nope. very intelligent. Uh, nope. Nope. He knew everything about computers. Nope. Nope. Rich and his computer buddies considered themselves, quote-unquote, hackers, and they allowed Susie to enter their all-male hacker group by proving her abilities to hack into someone else's computer. Yeah, shout out to the movie Hackers. That was a great movie. Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. They shared the hacker manifesto that was circulated around in the late 80s. They even established their own website provider called Global 2000. Susie, Rich, and their friends dressed in all black, and they were seen as somewhat goth in their high school. The two tech nerds, Susie and Rich, became an item for the next three years. Rich seemed to be Susie's sole emotional support besides her family, and the two developed a codependent relationship in which several say Rich was the dominant one. They attended different high schools, but after school, they spent all of their time together. When they were apart, they were on the phone or chatting on their computers. When it came time for college, her parents are going to suggest that she goes to the state college in New York. Well, this is the State University of New York, which actually has several locations. They're going to encourage her to go to the one in Oneonta, which is about two hours away, instead of the much closer State University of New York in Albany. So so they wanted her out of the house? Yes, but this is because they felt that she could use a break from her relationship with Rich, who was living at home while attending another college. Susie's mother, Mary admits that she and Susie butted heads over what Mary viewed as a somewhat unhealthy relationship between her daughter and rich. Right. So, Hey, go off, learn your stuff, but let's do it. You know, let's do it at arm's length. You're, you're not too far away from mom and dad in the family. You're just a couple hours away. Maybe it's healthy for her to spread her wings and fly and meet new people. Yeah. And I think sometimes as a parent, of a teenage kid when they're so intense with the relationship, you you're afraid they're going to miss out on opportunities that they would have taken if they weren't in a relationship. Right. And other than rich, she doesn't have much of a social life, right? Right. She works, she goes to school, she gets good grades, and then she spends all of her time with rich. But when you have a daughter that seems very independent and maybe a loner, the worst case scenarios for her to get into a relationship where she's then codependent. Well, Susie did enroll at Oneata for her freshman year, but she found the computer curriculum was not challenging her. She told her mom that basically she could teach the class herself and she wanted to transfer. But 
you have to wonder, this may have been really just an excuse to hide what was really going on, right? Yeah, or a lot of teenagers think they know everything. Well, Susie did not have any friends at college, but that was because it doesn't look like she ever really gave it a chance. Her parents discovered that Susie was leaving the school every weekend and going to Rich's house and staying at Rich's house every weekend. Rich's parents facilitated this by doing all of the driving because Susie did not have a driver's license. Mary and Doug, Susie's parents, were not happy when they found out about this. But the pattern continued anyway for the entirety of Susie's freshman year and into her sophomore year when she then transferred to the State University of New York, Albany, just minutes away from Rich's home. When she was on campus, Rich was often in her room or with her, and he and his computer friends would constantly stop by the computer store where Susie worked. So once again, the two were inseparable. Susie's family was not happy about this. They found Rich to be cold, hard to get to know, not really friendly, and lacking in social graces. He was all about computers, and he was very opinionated. Susie seemed to be growing to be more and more like him as their relationship progressed, taking on his opinions and taking up the activities that he preferred. Susie did break up with Rich at least one time that we are aware of. Her cousin later related that Susie told her Rich was too possessive and she didn't like it. So they broke it off, but just for a little bit because they did get back together. Susie and her mom argued a lot about this decision at the time. One of the things that I don't like about this relationship either is Rich is the gateway to the other friends. So if there's no Rich, there's no other friends. Right. The only thing, though, just from someone who, look, we don't know either of these individuals and we weren't there present for any of this from the outside looking in. It appears to me that Rich may be a little more outgoing than Susie is and that Susie's fine with just having the one friend, Rich, and having her family. At Albany, Susie found the computer coursework to be much more rigorous than she had expected. In fact, she was struggling at school and she was stressed and was afraid that she was failing some of her classes. Organizational skills were not Susie's strength and she was paying for it in her academic life. Plus, in addition to her full-time course load, she was working two jobs. She worked in Troy, which is about 10 miles away, transcribing medical textbooks into CD-ROM. That sounds like a fun job. Yeah. And she worked at Babbage's, a software and tech chain store located in the local Crossgates Mall, In Gilderland. Sounds like a real snoozer. Susie was very conscientious and she was a very reliable person. She liked routine and predictability. She was in touch with her parents every day. And as we have already seen, she was also in touch with her boyfriend, Rich, multiple times a day, either by phone or on the computer. Susie was not someone who would just run away or go off the grid. She was not a partier or someone who acted spontaneously. She was a creature of habit, and her family 
and Rich generally had an idea where she was at all times. She had a circle of people that she chatted with at work and in the computer clubs that she was a member of. Now let's get to the events of March 2nd, 1998. In the beginning of March 1998, Susie was living in a large dorm complex on the State University of New York. We're going to just start calling that Sunny because it's getting too long for me to say that. In Albany, Uptown Campus. She had some female suite mates who she shared her residential space with, but her roommate had left school after the first semester. So it doesn't seem that she shared an actual room with anyone. Susie was about to enter midterm exams, and she was stressed out about this. While in school, as we mentioned, she held down a part-time job at Babbage's. That's a, that's like a video game store that would eventually become GameStop as we know it today. Right. This was a store in the mall not far from the actual campus. Over the weekend, she told her boss, his name is Garland Nelson, that she was anxious about a big midterm that was coming up on Monday. It was her hardest test that week, and she was concerned that she would not do well. Garland knew her pretty well and described her as friendly and helpful, confident in who she was, someone who enjoyed chatting with customers about the products that the store carried. So nothing but good things to say about Susie. On Monday, March 2nd, Susie took her midterm exam as scheduled. Then in the afternoon, she took a Capital District Transit Authority, CDTA, bus from the bus stop on campus right near her dorm to the mall to head to work. This was Susie's routine, and lots of students took the bus around Albany. When she arrived for her 4 o'clock shift at Babbage's, she told Garland that her exam had gone okay. She set to work unboxing merchandise and placing sales tags on items. Her boss says she seemed 100% normal on this day. Susie clocked out of her job that Monday night at 9 p.m. A mall security person saw her head out a back exit of the mall toward the bus stop to take the CDTA bus back to campus. This exit was closer to the bus stop than the busy main exit to the mall. And all indications are that Susie did board the number 12 bus that night, but she never made it to her dorm. And Susie Lyle has never been seen again. So this campus bus, was it something that they had to use a student ID or did they have to pay for or did they have a pass? That's a good question. I do not know the answer to that question. It seems like you would have to pay for it in some manner or some form. Right. But we don't have any indicator. My guess is that it was something that was paid for per person that you didn't pay using a, an actual pass because a pass with her name on it or any type of swipe card that would have electronically recorded that she got on the bus. Yeah, we don't have confirmation that she got on the bus. Right. There's no record of that for us to cite here. Now, if that is the case, the police may know that. We just don't. The next day, Mary Lyle's home phone rings. The caller is Susie's boyfriend, Rich. Rich says, quote, 
did you know Susie is missing? And Mary and Doug, Lyle, their nightmare began at that moment. Right. As we said, Susie always checked in with Rich multiple times a day, but more specifically when she got home from work each night. The two would often chat on the computer or played video games into the night. That night, her sweet mates never heard her come in. They did, however, hear Susie's phone ring over and over again that night. As March 2nd turned into March 3rd and Rich grew more and more concerned, he was trying to call Susie's dorm, trying to get a hold of her. In fact, he called her dorm room nine times that night. This was confirmed both by Rich and by the phone records. There was never any answer. He accessed her computer remotely, but could not find any indication of where she could have gone. By morning time, he was frantic. He and his mother reported Susie missing to the campus police. When Rich phoned the Lyles to let them know that he could not reach Susie, everyone immediately knew that this was very bad. As we said, she was a person of routine. She was easy to get a hold of. She was always in contact with her parents and with Rich. Now, they probably have the phone records of when he started calling her phone. Yes, they do. And, and as said, he called nine times that night. That has been confirmed. I'm guessing around 9.30, 9.45 is probably when the first call is coming in because she would have been back to her, her dorm by then. Well, Mary calls... Susie's brother, Stephen, and her sister, Sandy, and wanted to see if either of them have heard anything, and they had not heard from Susie either. Doug Lyle called the campus police. Doug and Mary waited while the campus officers located the resident advisor on Susie's dorm floor, who opened up her room and said that nothing appeared to be out of place. An officer went to her next class to see if she showed up but Susie was not there either. So Doug decides, her father, to drive over to the campus security office. This is a 30-minute drive from the family's home. Mary stays at home with her other daughter, Sandy, by the phone. They are calling friends and family and even checking with area hospitals and really waiting to see if Susie herself would call. We will say right off the bat that the way that the case was handled by the campus police has been resoundingly criticized. And in fact, laws have been passed to change the way these things are addressed. Well, but in their defense, though, there's probably several times uh, a week where a student thinks another student is missing and they just aren't. And within a couple calls or reaching out to other contacts, they're able to find the individual pretty quickly. Right, but it doesn't appear that they did much in the early stages of this because at first the campus police told the Lyles that this kind of thing happens all of the time. You know, the college students, right? They, they disappear, they fall out of contact for a while, especially during the exam times. The Lyles insisted that their daughter did not leave on her own. It was purely because of Doug and Mary's persistence that the case was actually taken seriously. Doug says he refused to leave and sat in the security office and waited while he was assured 
that security personnel would scour the campus looking for his daughter. Meanwhile, Rich went down to the Crossgates Mall to try to retrace Susie's steps. Okay, so we have dad working with the security personnel. We have the boyfriend who is now going to go to the mall where she worked and try to retrace her steps. So, Captain, let's see, using the witnesses, if we can retrace Susie's steps with Rich. So Susie's boss at Babbage's consulted with the night supervisor who was on duty when Susie left on Monday night. He said that he did not see Susie actually leave the mall, but added that many employees, including Susie, usually went out the back way. That was a shortcut to the bus stop, which we would believe her to be heading to. Eventually, the state police were able to determine that Susie had almost certainly made it onto the bus. So what they did was they tracked down the number 12 bus driver, and he said that he remembered Susie, who was often on his bus. He was fairly certain that she got onto the bus that night, but unfortunately he could not recall where she got off, what stop she got off of the bus. All he knew was that she was no longer on the bus when it got to the last stop. Someone else saw Susie that night. This was a floor mate of Susie's who was very familiar with her. They regularly crossed paths on their daily schedules. This young woman who was interviewed multiple times and never ever wavered in her certainty that she saw Susie disembarking the bus at the stop right near her dorm. This would be Susie's regular stop, the Collins Circle stop after work. This woman was getting on the bus, and the two passed as Susie got off, and she got on. This was around 9.40 to 9.45 p.m., which actually fits exactly with the timeline that Susie would have followed according to her normal routine. The walk to Susie's dorm building from the bus stop was just a matter of 100 yards along a path that led through some trees straight to the dormitory door. It is generally stated that Susie did not make it into her dorm that night. The swipe machine that allowed students to access did not register her entering the building. However, as anyone who has lived in a dorm knows often students will just hold the door for one another. So she could have gotten into the building without technically using her card. Right, but nobody saw her in there. We have no eyewitness. We don't have any of her sweet mates saying they saw her. No, it it really appears that the last person who believes that they saw Susie, as the reports go, is this this woman who young woman who shared a dorm and lived in the dorm building with her shared a floor with her, so knew her face well, knew her name well, sees her getting off the bus while she's getting on. And again, this fits with the, the time frame that we're talking about. Some other indicators that Susie likely never returned to her room that night. Her glasses were still sitting on the bed where she had left them. She wore contacts to work that day. The backpack that she always carried and her wallet were never found. And she never checked in with Rich, as we said, and no one in the entire dorm could recall seeing her that night. Most signs are pointing toward 
the theory that Susie Lowell disappeared somewhere in the 300 feet between the bus and her dorm. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, 
Fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers. Now, while poor Mary Lyle was at home calling everyone she knew to try to find her daughter, Susie, she had a stroke of genius. She decided to call Susie's bank to check her bank transactions. This was around 3.45 p.m. on Tuesday, March 3rd. She spoke to a representative who looked up her daughter's bank account information. She noted that Susie had used her ATM card twice the day before. Mary knew that it was Susie's MO to only take out $20 at a time. This was normal for her, and she had about $120 in her account. But what was strange was that there were two transactions on that Monday, both for the amount of $20. One was at the Key Bank ATM across from the Collins Circle bus stop. This is where she would have got on the bus to go to work that day. And then the next one was another withdrawal for $20 at the Cross Gates Mall after she would have gotten off the bus. This seemed very strange to Mary. She could not imagine why her daughter would have taken out money twice in such a short amount of time. Even more significant While Mary was on the phone with the bank representative, the woman said to her, Oh, wait, I think the card was just used. And sure enough, someone used Susie's card to take out another $20. This was at 3.50 p.m. on March 3rd when Susie had not heard, she's not been heard from for about 18 hours by this point. And even more chilling, the PIN number was entered correctly 
on the very first attempt. The woman on the phone could not tell where the cash machine that had just been used was located. This was 1998, and that kind of information would take hours to register on their system. She promised to call Mary back the next day with the location, and when she did, Mary learned that the card was used at Stewart's Convenience Store at the corner of Central Avenue and Manning Boulevard in Albany. This is about two and a half miles from campus. So they're wondering at the time, Captain, could this have been Susie using her card, or do we have somebody else that's taken possession of this card, and for some reason they know the PIN number? One, just to be clear, you said there's an eyewitness that saw or thinks they saw Susie getting off the bus while she was getting on the bus. Mm -hmm. Now, was that at the stop of their dorm? Yes. Okay. So it's not like Susie stayed on the bus and maybe got off the bus at a different exit. If this eyewitness is correct, then Susie disappeared somewhere between that bus stop and her dorm door. Mm -hmm. It's a 300 feet between the bus stop and the door leading to the dorm. Mary and Doug, they decided to sit down with Rich and his parents, Richard and Donna Cundin, to brainstorm. Now, Mary was a little surprised when she told them about the ATM card usage and the pin being correct. Rich volunteered that besides Susie, he was the only one who knew her pin. Mary found this to be very strange. This was around the first time that she started to question whether Rich could have been involved in the disappearance of her daughter. She recalled how intertwined he was with his, with her daughter's life. They each had full access to each other's information. It would have been easy for him to manipulate things, to make incriminating evidence go away. Right. And Mary and Doug began to feel that Rich was not as emotional about Susie's disappearance as they would expect them to be. Well, they both had access to each other's laptops, but they also had access to access those laptops remotely. Correct. Now, we should make a, a note here. You know, he knew her pin because he always drove. Susie did not have a driver's license. So it's a very simple situation of they're going somewhere together. He's the driver. You pull up to the drive up ATM. She hands him the card. My pin numbers one, two, three, four, get me $20. I think you should come up with a better passcode on Wednesday, March 3rd in the mail at the Lyle house was a birthday card for Mary from Susie. It was mailed on Monday, the first, the day after Mary's actual birthday. It said, quote, see you Thursday, Susie. Of course, this card has taken on all the more poignancy in Mary's mind since it was the last contact she would ever have with her daughter. After two days of fruitless searches and pressure from the family, the campus police finally called in the New York State Police. They took the case seriously from the outset. They conducted shoulder-to-shoulder searches of the campus and surrounding areas. This was a total of 300 acres in all. They brought in divers. They seized Susie's computer but didn't find anything. 
They found the bus driver who was the one that told them that he believed Susie was, in fact, on the bus that night. They were the ones that found the floor mate who saw her getting off of the bus. They tracked down her old roommate who had left school. She had nothing enlightening to say. Well, one of the problems with somebody going missing on campus is all the areas that they could have gone to. I mean, you have a very small radius, um, but you have a lot of people within that radius. That's true. The, the other thing, too, is we seem to have a situation where, yes, she could have gone in any number of places in a, in a fairly short amount of time walking there, I would imagine. But we also have a short amount of time that she is all of a sudden not accounted for. You know, she comes home from work. She would have been thought to checking in with her boyfriend or seen by people that live in the dorm with her. Right. And that doesn't seem to be the case. We also, just to be clear too, with the, with the birthday card, it seems a little more ominous than what it actually is. The, the card was mailed before she went missing. It just happened that it took two days for it to be delivered. And by the time it's delivered to her mother, she is in fact missing now by this time. Right. Some people question the date of it. They're like, you know, it was mailed the day after her mother's birthday. Well, her mother's birthday was on Sunday. So if Susie slipped up and forgot to drop it in the mail on Saturday, this thing wouldn't be registered as mailed until Monday. One of the things that the Stadies were able to do was to get a lead on that ATM card usage. They subpoenaed the surveillance footage from the Stewart's convenience store where the ATM card was used. But in a disappointing blow to everyone, the video camera that the store used did not show the ATM machine at all. It showed only the register and the customers who were paying. Police were able to put together a list of the transactions on the ATM machine that were made that day and tracked down all but one user. They contacted each of these people and interviewed them and ruled them out as having used Susie's card. The one final ATM user who they could not find, they believed may have withdrawn cash from the ATM and then purchased a cup of coffee, a newspaper, and a lottery ticket at the register. This meant that they had his image on camera, and there he was. This guy became known as Nike Man. He was a black man wearing a Nike baseball hat. Police put together a sketch of the man seen on the grainy video and circulated it. The Cumden family paid to have billboards all over town featuring Susie and the image of Nike Man. Eventually, Nike Man contacted the state police and spoke with them. This guy's name has never been released to the public. There were two red flags regarding this man. One, he was a cook in the kitchen where Susie went to school. Two, he was a felon convicted of a violent rape in the Troy area in the 1980s. Police interviewed Nike Man seven different times. They watched the tape with him at the convenience store. According to Mary Lyle, this man paid for his coffee and lottery ticket with a wad of ones. 
So there is no indication that he had used the ATM machine. Right. That wouldn't make any sense. You don't Doesn't get spit ones. Out ones. From, depend, yeah. Depending on what ATM you go to. Yeah, I, I would be shocked. There are some ATMs that will spit out ones. I would like to withdraw $7, please. Well, I won't tell you where those are located, though. So there's no indication that this man used the ATM machine, and in his defense, he was the one that contacted police when he's seeing his picture on the billboards, right? Yeah. And eventually police came to the conclusion that he had not used the machine. He yeah. did not have Susie's ATM card. After his picture's everywhere. And he had an alibi for the night of her disappearance. But So we got to keep in mind, it. I don't think they did anything wrong there. Uh, with putting his face out there, what they're doing is they are tracking those ATM transactions and then they're going, okay, well, within minutes of someone using this ATM, then we see a person at the register buying something. Right. They're finding out, they're going, okay, this person did this transaction. This person did this transaction. This person did this one. They have all of them accounted for except for the one with Susie's card. And Susie's not seen on the camera, but we have this man who's seen on camera shortly around the time of that transaction. But again, like you said, the camera never picks up the ATM machine, so we can't rule out the fact that Susie could have used her own card. Correct. We have no idea who used that card at that ATM that day. And the thing that we have to keep in mind, too, for for the younger listeners, and I'm sure it's probably still this way today, but very uncommon, I would guess. For three-year-olds and well, five-year-olds listening. Yeah, the ones that have bank accounts. Right. But the, uh, the deal would be, back then, an ATM card was just that, an ATM card. It wasn't like a debit card where you can pay for goods and services with your card or use it at an ATM machine. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So it, somebody would have to go in there uh, to get money. But but that's also another problem, too, because if it was a debit card, then she might have not actually withdrew money from that location and might have just made a purchase so it would know what that money was for or would know um, because it, maybe we don't see her on video footage somewhere but if we knew what the purchase was, we could line that up with her to see if those purchases made sense. But she didn't make a purchase at the store. I know that. What I'm saying is if if it was technology that we use today, a debit card, right? Right. Then, then she wouldn't have went to that ATM to do a withdrawal or whoever went to the ATM to do the withdrawal. They would have just made a purchase and then based on what the purchase item was, would be able to kind of connect the dots. Does that go back to something that she would purchase? Right. Right. And the for that scenario to go down in that manner, the I mean, the purchase would be have been made elsewhere, not at this store. Right. So the police showed her photo to the store clerk who was on duty that day. He didn't recall seeing her at all, seeing Susie at all that day. And Susie's family did a televised plea for information on their daughter and offered up a $15,000 reward for information, but nothing really came of any of this. Now, two months later, so what we have here, Captain, we got two excruciating months that go by as the Lyles coped with this nightmare situation. Their daughter is missing. They have no leads and no answers by this point. 
Mary spent days in her nightgown and robe. She says she was not even functional during this time. Doug went the opposite. He went 100% full-on quest to find his daughter with everything he had. He worked with police. He searched the mall and campus areas over and over and over again. He kept a running blog of observations and developments in the case. He worked with all the psychics who contacted the family. He helped organize uh, searches for his daughter. All in all, he poured his heart and soul into the search for his youngest child. Now, it was much to everyone's surprise and really to their dismay as well, when two students turned something into the campus police in May, two months after Susie vanished. They were walking on the street right near the bus stop where Susie was last seen in the visitor parking lot that was heavily used. And there, sticking out of a small pile of sand, was an ID card. It was a Babbage's employee card, the kind with the, you know, the pin on the back so that it can be pinned to someone's shirt or clothing. Right. And it read Susie L. It looked a little weather beaten and the pin on the back was rusted. This discovery was a big deal because after the ATM machine, it was the only clue that the investigation yielded. This was the 1997 Babbage's employee ID. In the new year, the company had replaced the pin style card with lanyard cards. So this was not Susie's current work ID. And more importantly, what is it doing on the ground in this, you know, visitor parking area near the bus stop where she gets off the bus? Yeah. Very strange. So this is 300 yards in the opposite direction of the path that Susie would use to walk directly to her dorm. Now, Mary did not believe that Susie got off the bus that night and headed away from her dorm. She said she would have gone to her room. If she was planning to meet up with someone, they were unable to determine who. It didn't. Nobody knows if she had any plans that would be different than any other day. Than, than her normal routine. Rich told the police that he sometimes parked in this visitor's lot to meet Susie when she got off the bus after work. But he says that that night he did not. Now, no one could figure out how her old card ended up where it did and how it had not been found in all of the searches before. Some believe that there was one possibility. So, and I think this makes a good deal of sense here. The area had a big snowfall in the day or so after Susie vanished. Some have wondered, is it possible that the card maybe got pushed by snow plows or trucks into a pile of snow in the visitor's lot and only emerged once, you know, all the snow melted away. Mm -hmm. Others wondered if it was planted by somebody. Police were not able to obtain any usable prints or DNA off of the card to help them come to any conclusions. Now, it's worth noting that the visitor parking lot was in a very well lit, and again, it's a very busy area. The lot itself is very busy with traffic. The street is very busy, and it's on a very busy campus. 
It would have been busy even at the time of night as students got out of night classes or got rides from friends to go out. It seemed very unlikely that Susie was abducted from here at 9.45 p.m. without anyone seeing or hearing anything. Nobody reports hearing a scream or seeing some kind of scuffle right. or, or a young woman being pulled into a vehicle. Her mother, Mary, is convinced that she would have screamed if someone had tried anything. She says that she knew that Susie knew to yell fire to attract assistance from people nearby. She could have been abducted as she walked the path through a small wooded area between the bus stop and her dorm. But again, this was a busy campus with roughly 17,000 students. Is she the one that said, if you yell help, most people won't come help you. You have to yell fire. Her and thousands of other people. If Yeah, if you yell fire, people are more likely to react than if you yell help or rape or, you know. Which is strange because if somebody yelled fire to me, I'm like, run. Fire means run. But if somebody said help to me, that would be run towards, you know. So Well, Rich, the boyfriend, as we know, they were dating for about three years before Susie vanished. What's his alibi? He is believed to have been playing video games. So we have we have the police. They did look at Rich pretty hard. And he was cooperative, let's say. He and his mother were the ones who actually reported Susie missing. They reported her missing and then contacted her parents. When asked where he was on the night of uh, that she went missing, he said that he was at home at his parents playing video games online with his friend Justin. Right, but doesn't that seem a little odd? Don't you think you'd call the parents? You've been with her a while. Don't you think you'd call the parents before you call the cops? Um, yeah, I mean, that's what I would do. Yeah. So he's at home playing video games. Yes. He says he was at his parents' house playing video games online with his friend Justin. Justin confirms this for police. And his parents, Rich's parents, say that he was at home that night as well. Now, we do have phone records that confirmed that the calls from his phone went to Susie's dorm that night. Uh-huh. And later that night, according to Mary Lyle, Rich took the time to upload some music to Susie's computer that he knew she liked. Rich and his parents appeared to be fully cooperative and super concerned about the search for Susie. Still so odd that so he uploaded music to her computer remotely. Yes. Yeah. That's still a little strange to me. That I don't find strange. If they both had access to each other's computers, this might have been something that she had asked him to do right, right. in advance. No, I don't find the act. I think it's a, a very, you know, sweet thing to do for your girlfriend, but a little strange to give access to, to your computer to your significant other. Senior investigator James Horton, well, he's got something different to say. He was, at the time, the head of the major crimes unit in Loudonville. He said that police believe Susie fell victim to a crime. Quote, we felt immediately that she was most probably a victim of foul play, and time has not helped to change our mind. In fact, it has made us feel even more strongly. End quote. Jim Horton said on the Upstate Unsolved podcast, which did a long-form coverage of this case, 
and a damn good job at that too. Jim said that it is his opinion that the Condens, the boyfriend and his parents, did not really cooperate with police as much as they tried to stay close to the investigation. They wanted to, in his opinion, stay on top of what the police knew. And he says some of their behavior was odd. There are examples of Rich and his parents acting strange. So, are, you know, are they just weird people or are they possibly hiding something? Right. Here are some examples of things that came to light involving Rich that at least raised the question of whether he should be considered a suspect or not. We'll call this segment things that make you go. Mm. Right. Investigator Jim Horton told Upstate Unsolved that Rich's mother, Donna, tried to paint a picture in which she was super close with Susie, mm. that she knew her better than her own parents did, and that Susie didn't really care for her own parents. Jim determined based on the evidence that this was, in fact, not true. And when meeting with Donna and Susie's parents together, he said that Donna would jump in to answer all of Jim's questions, even the ones that he directed at Marianne Doug, at Susie's parents, to the point that Jim says he had to ask her to stop doing this. Further, as the investigation progressed, Donna would not allow Jim to speak with her son, Rich, alone, even though Rich was technically an adult at this time. Right. Jim unearthed that Donna and Richard Condon, Richard's dad, lived separate existences in the household, with the dad living in the basement, the grandparents lived on a recliner in the living room. That sounds comfortable. Rich had a room. Where they lived, like they couldn't, like the floor was lava and they couldn't move around. Right. They had to stay on the recliner. Rich had a room, but when Susie visited each weekend, he would give Susie his room and sleep in the bed with his mom. That's. Oh. <laughs> right. Hey, you. Well, hold hey, on. Red don't, flag. I'm going to be nice. Take my bed. I'll be in the other room sleeping with my mom. Yeah. Sniffing her. In May, Susie's cousin organized a volunteer search for her that gathered at the campus and radiated outward five miles. Donna and Rich showed up as well. Okay, so mom and boyfriend, well, boyfriend and boyfriend's mom are at this search. Right. Now, when the search leader instructed the searchers to bring anything found back to him, now we have boyfriend's mom, Donna, who interjected that said that these items should be brought to her instead because she knew Susie best. So one, that's weird on its own, but two, let's times that by 10 because Susie's family were all in attendance for this search as well. Well, you can't believe his parents as his alibi. It just doesn't work for me. They have reasons to lie. So right. we're going to throw that one out. But okay, so he's playing these games at home. Now he's, these He's still got his friend and he's got the uh, phone records. They yeah, work but, on his but hold on real quick because nowadays when you play video games online, which I'm not much of a gamer, but shout out to the, there's a gamer right now listening to us. You know, you know who you are. Shout out to you. And we know who you are. And we know, who, and we're watching you right now. No, but 
video games now, they're pretty interactive. You have headphones. You talk to each other. Back in the day, you could be playing somebody online. That doesn't mean necessarily that you are talking to them. It could have been his father playing a game with his friend. That is correct. You were, you we were don't right in this we, situation. So we don't know exactly how his friend knows it was his, you know, uh, it was the boyfriend. The other thing too is the calls that were going to her dorm room were coming from his house. That just proves that the calls were made coming from his house. I don't think that proves that he made the calls. That's correct. You could have somebody a sit-in for both the video game playing playing and the phone calls. Right. And this just seems like a pretty strange family. So I like this Jim Horton investigator. Uh, and what he wanted to do was throughout the months, he wanted to try to maintain a rapport with Rich and with his parents. And so what he did was he would just stop by their home fairly often in the first few months of this investigation. And he would, he would take a nap with the mom. Yeah. He would sleep with the grandparents on the recliner. Yeah. He lived in the same town. So this was convenient for him to do, but I, you know, I appreciate someone going above and beyond, especially when we're looking for a missing young woman here. So at one point over that summer, Rich said something very strange. Richard uh, is again, uh, Rich's father to be clear. Okay. So Richard and Jim were talking about Richard and Jim were talking and Richard mentioned that he recently saw Susie 45 minutes to an hour West of Albany while driving on his trucking route. Uh. He says that he did not report this sighting, but he was certain that's his words. Certain it was her. Didn't report it. Why didn't he report this? That's a very good question. That makes zero sense. The next week when he spoke to Jim, he said that he saw her again. This time, Jim gave Richard his cell phone number and said, you know, call me right away when you see her again. Well, why wouldn't you stop and talk to her? Well, listen to what Jim did. Jim put undercover cops on surveillance of Richard and they followed him around. So sure enough, in a few days, Richard called in to Jim and said, Hey, well, just to be clear. So they're going to put surveillance on the boyfriend's father. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So sure enough, in the few days, in a few days afterwards, Richard called Jim and said, I can see her meaning Susan, Susie. She's sitting on a park bench. The undercover cops saw this woman too and estimated that her age would be about 80 years old. So it was not Susie. No one could ever figure out what the heck was going on with these so-called sightings that Richard reported to Jim about Susie. There's that there's your red flag right there. So that is all the information you need as a detective to say something's not right here and we need to figure this out. Well, and how bizarre if, if in fact rich is responsible for, for Susie's disappearance, then it appears that his parents know something or are trying to cover something up at the same time. Yeah. They're both 
trying to cover up tracks. It's uh, it's very telling. Um, besides the, the bizarre behavior that we just discussed, there are a few pieces of circumstantial evidence that do point to riches more than just an eccentric dude from a bizarro family. One, we know that he knew Susie's ATM card pin. As we pointed out, he could have been the one to use that. The pin number was entered correctly the first time. Two, he admitted that he usually picked her up from the visitor's lot where her old ID, work ID card was later found. Right. When the ID card was found, his mother volunteered that she had told Susie if she were ever abducted to drop items on the ground. You know, maybe maybe she's trying to point out that maybe this really did happen. Maybe she did tell this young woman to do right. this. Or maybe she's trying to point out, my son couldn't have been involved. He was at home. She was following my advice, and this is proof that she was abducted. Right. Further, Rich never spoke to the police alone, as we already stated. And after a few months, he stopped talking to investigators altogether. Another thing of note is that Mary Lyle was present when about two weeks before she vanished, before Susie vanished, Susie stopped by Rich's house and handed him an eight and a half by 11 envelope. Apparently this contained some kind of letter. Now, Rich, her boyfriend has never produced this letter and has refused to discuss its contents. So we do not know what was in that envelope. Susie's mother wonders if it was something important or has to do with why she cannot find her daughter. Of course, if this guy's not, one, going to produce that information or explain the information, that's just ridiculous. On Upstate Unsolved, there are some pieces of information about the Condons that are damning. The family owned a boat and a car that were sold shortly after Susie's disappearance. They also owned a property in Gansfort with a trailer and a shed on it. Now, it appears that these this has never been searched as far as we know. Also, Rich was asked to leave. This is really bizarre. He was asked to leave the college where he was enrolled when Susie disappeared, and it is not known why. It could be something very simple. But it is not known why he was asked to leave. And the whole family lawyered up in the fall of 1998. None have agreed to be interviewed by the media. If you're looking for any of our old episodes, download the Stitcher app. They're on there for free. And we also have a bonus show called Off the Record where we give a lot of case updates. So that's something you want to check out as well. Yeah, we just dropped a new Off the Record this week. All right. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.